Atomic Veterans. Many people can qualify under that term, but one major category where it's usually used is for those in the U.S. Armed Forces who served on ships that monitored the atomic test blasts in the Pacific Proving Grounds, a.k.a. the Marshall Islands. While the native population was irradiated, their homes destroyed and made uninhabitable, their health and DNA terminally impacted, our government ignored not only them, but its own people hiding and ignoring the truth of radiation exposure. So when you hear the adult child of a naval officer who is exposed to somewhere between 20 and 40 of those blasts, and she has done a deep dive into files to learn the truth about what happened, and she tells you, isn't really known as what was going on with the radiation falling on those ships, is a lot of it was being collected in cisterns, And in the commode systems on those ships, the gentlemen literally were dangling their personal information over troughs of radiated water. So reproductive issues for these men who had any long-term assignment on the ships um, does often impact reproductive issues, as it does in the offspring and further generations. Well, well, when you learn what happened to her father and to her, and to so many others who took part in those ill-fated, ill-conceived atomic bomb tests, you learn yet another aspect of that deadly, uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we have information about a new group, Children of Atomic Veterans, the offspring of those military men who witnessed and worked on the atomic bombing of the peaceful Marshall Islands and other islands in what was labeled the Pacific Proving Grounds between 1946 and 1962. We talk with one of the group's founders, Victoria Moore, about the health-destroying impact of that exposure on her father and what it did to her and then how it shaped her entire life. You'll also learn where to contact this relatively new group, especially if you have a nuclear veteran in your genetic upline. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than has yet been certified by the General Services Administration. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 10, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Let's start with a crucial issue here in the United States, actually around the world, but specifically here in the U.S. for now, that has danger of falling through the cracks. It's 
pending nuclear waste legislation. And this Friday, November 13, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, there is going to be a one-hour virtual congressional briefing, what Congress needs to know about pending nuclear waste legislation. Organized by the group Clearwater, which worked so long and hard on Indian Point issues, and the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. Bills in Congress are now pending that could enable consolidated interim storage facilities in West Texas and New Mexico, which would trigger thousands of shipments of high-level radioactive nuclear waste across the U.S. on normal highways and the like, allow nuclear owners to offload liability for nuclear waste by transferring title to the Department of Energy, and a whole bunch of other changes that will not be good in the long run for people or the environment. Appearing on this congressional briefing will be Robert Alvarez, Associate Fellow for the Institute for Policy Studies and former Department of Energy Senior Policy Advisor to Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary for National Security and the Environment. Don Hancock, Nuclear Waste Program Director for Southwest Research and Information Center, and any dirty laundry at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in New Mexico that Don Hancock doesn't know isn't worth knowing. Also on the call will be Diane DeRico, Radioactive Waste Project Director for Nuclear Information and Resource Service. It is open to the public. It is this Friday the 13th, always a good luck day for me. And we'll have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 490. In alignment with that, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has sent a letter to president, but not for much longer, Trump last week, urging him to put a stop to storing high levels of nuclear waste in rural West Texas. Governor Abbott writes, the proposed sites are within the state of Texas and within the state of New Mexico, close to the Texas border. Allowing the interim, I wish he would put that in quotes, interim storage of spent nuclear fuel and high-level nuclear waste at sites near the largest producing oil field in the world will compromise the safety of the region. NIMBY meets Texas over the Permian Basin. Meanwhile, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists published an article that supports these so-called interim waste storage sites. It's entitled, Private Centralized Storage for Spent Nuclear Fuel, A Dead End? A Dead End or a Path Forward? Really, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists? Really? With friends like you... Well, hopefully this was just a misstep and doesn't show a trend. The U.S. official overseeing the nation's nuclear weapons stockpile resigned on Friday, November 6, after clashing with Energy Secretary Dan Brulette. Lisa Gordon Haggerty, administrator of the National Nuclear Safety Administration, sought to enlist Brulette to support a $20 billion with a B dollar request for fiscal 2021, but Brulette instead asked her to sign a letter endorsing a lower amount while offering assurances the NSA's mission would still be achieved. The NNSA is responsible for producing and dismantling nuclear weapons, as well as cleaning up the toxic legacy left behind from previous nuclear bomb manufacturing across the U.S. Yeah, exactly the place where you want to cut the money short. However, Lisa Gordon Haggerty earned numbnuts of the week from Nuclear Hot Seat for having commemorated the Trinity test blast in New Mexico by saying, quote, I hope I can impart 
how it, meaning Trinity, the atomic bomb explosion, contributed to the betterment of humanity. Yeah, even at a reduced budget, I hope that sensitivity training might be part of it, as well as following through with the mandate to clean the mess up before you build any more of those buggers. Meanwhile, Lisa, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. The International Committee for Radiological Protection, or ICRP, is widely acknowledged to be the codependent arm of the nuclear industry. Well, they're throwing a party. Uh, actually, it's a big ingathering of its clan, virtually, of course, for the International Conference on Recovery After Nuclear Accidents. Doesn't that sound good? And in setting up their program, they put out a call for abstracts, those short summaries of a researcher's published or unpublished research, to introduce the work and promote it to further and greater visibility. Mary Olson responded to that call for abstracts. Mary is a biologist, was staff biologist and policy analyst at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NIRS, for 26 years, and is founder of the Gender and Radiation Impact Project at genderandradiation.org. She is highly respected across the board. The paper she proposed in the abstract would have reviewed findings that radiation has variable harm across the human life cycle, tied to both age and biological sex, and proposed the adoption of a new reference individual for regulatory purposes, Reference Little Girl. She has presented this information at esteemed international gatherings and addressed the United Nations. Her abstract was rejected in a brief email from ICRP with the comment, We have difficulty seeing the connection between your abstract and the theme of the conference, Recovery After Nuclear Accidents. What? According to the International Committee for Radiological Protection, the impact of radiation on the genetic future of our species is not considered relevant to recovery after a nuclear accident. Which leads me to the question, ICRP, how do you define recovery? Are you talking about financial recovery, political, reputational or is this just another of your basic nuclear posterior covering rebranding of a disaster because you and your minions can't handle the truth? Now, this is hardly the first time that RCIP has obstructed radiological truth. Mary reports that until 2020, its publications were only available to government agencies or for purchase for thousands of dollars and only to so-called qualified researchers. And despite trying to qualify and being eminently qualified, NIRS, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, was never considered qualified. And you wonder why the truth about radiation damage does not get out? Hey, ICRP, I dare you to read Mary's work and make it available to your nuclear corporatists, just so, even though they won't acknowledge it, they will subliminally understand the forever nature of the DNA dangers that they are complicit in exposing all of us to, even as they're covering up. And while you're at it, add this 
to your conference accolades. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And the Schellberger over at Forbes, Michael Schellenberger, the well-known nuclear industry shill, has done it again with an article, Why Biden Can Unite America with Nuclear Power or Divide It with Renewables. Dude, if this country is being divided right now, it is certainly not over renewables. Better check to make sure that check from the nuclear industry doesn't bounce. Over to Japan, where, as that country aims to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050, the new Prime Minister, Yoshihide Suga, has ruled out new nuclear plants or new reactors for Japan. Constitutional Democratic Party leader Edano Yukio threw his support behind the decision, citing the 2011 accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant and urging an early end to Japan's reliance on nuclear power. Indeed, Japan's next generation of Liberal Democratic Party leaders are embracing both carbon neutrality and the elimination of nuclear energy. The incumbent Minister for the Environment, Koizumi Shinjiro, has proposed easing restrictions on building solar and wind turbine sites in Japan's national parks, part of a solution to get around the challenge that Japan's land scarcity has posed to the mass introduction of renewables. Ongoing scientific research into radiation levels in Japan by Dr. Marco Kaltofen of Worcester Polytechnic Institute and Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer with Fairwinds Energy Education, has been peer-reviewed and accepted for publication in the Journal of Environmental Engineering Science. The work focuses on detecting radiation at Japan's 2021 Olympic venues and the publication of the article entitled Radioactively Hot Particles Detected in Dusts and Soils from Northern Japan will be the subject of an upcoming interview here on Nuclear Hot Seat. And in my perpetual search for talking points that make nuclear understandable, these came out of a recent article on Fukushima, The Nuclear Pandemic Spreads, by Manlio Dinucci, and comes from Global Research up in Canada. Try these for explanation. Plutonium remains lethal for a period corresponding to almost 10,000 human generations. The manufacture of nuclear warheads with a power equivalent to over 1 million Hiroshima bombs, and, as documented by the World Health Organization, a portion of approximately 10 million annual cancer deaths worldwide is attributable to the long-term effects of radiation. Moving right along, that wild and wacky Bill Gates has turned his attention to getting ships powered by nuclear energy and with backing from some of the biggest names in nuclear energy, has applied to the U.S. Department of Energy for cost-sharing support, a.k.a taxpayer dole money. Two points. Gates has among his partners Southern Company, the brainiacs behind the Vogel nuclear boondoggle in Georgia, which started in 2013, is years behind schedule and billions of dollars over budget, with no guarantee that the promised end date in 2021 is even feasible. And as for nuclear power chips, during the Cold War, some of them were actually built. The U.S. entry, the Savannah, 
entered service in 1962 and only operated until 1972 when the Maritime Administration decommissioned her over cost concerns. But this gets better. Japan's freighter Mutsu began service life in 1974, suffered a reactor shield fault on her maiden voyage, was not fully repaired until 1982, eight years later, and did not set sail again until 1991, when she was decommissioned only one year later. That's a great track record to build on, Bill. Just go solar and wind. In Canada, the Green Party has called on their federal government to abandon nuclear and invest in renewables. This comes on the heels of a recent announcement that the Canadian federal government will invest $20 million in Ontario-based terrestrial energy to develop its integral molten salt reactor. Green Party members of Parliament have written to Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan and Innovation Science and Industry Minister Navdeep Baines, calling on them to reconsider investments in new and unproven nuclear technology. Green Parliamentarian Leader Elizabeth May said, Choosing to invest in non-commercialized, novel, and unproven nuclear reactor technology is fiscally irresponsible and doesn't move us towards sustainability. A recent Canadian study found that energy from small modular nuclear reactors would cost up to 10 times more than renewable energy. And even the 2020 World Nuclear Industry Status Report states that the development of nuclear energy is too slow to address the climate crisis. Additionally, this report stated that nuclear power creates fewer jobs than renewable energy, such as solar, wind, direct energy, and geothermal. Another Green MP, Jessica Atwin, said, What we need is to be honest with ourselves about the realities of nuclear. The government continues to parrot industry talking points when what our history and experience with nuclear has shown is that it is not clean, it is not cheap, and we don't have the time to waste on this dangerous distraction. And Belarus has opened the country's first nuclear power plant, a project sharply criticized by neighboring Lithuania, in part because its capital, Vilnius, is only about 40 kilometers or 25 miles northeast of the reactor. What's the matter, Belarus? You didn't get smacked with enough radiation from Chernobyl? You want to manufacture more of your own? We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, the election. The post-election. The headlines, anxieties, yes, it is still going on, and yes, it's a major suck on time, energy, attention to say nothing of our adrenal glands. But no matter what's happening in politics, nuclear will always be an issue and a problem, and it's not going to go away, ever. And still, the nuclear industry continues to pour millions upon millions of dollars into their PR propaganda to convince not only you, but our congressional members that more, more, more nuclear is the cure for everything from climate change to national security to the common cold, when it's really a planetary poison with the potential to do us all in, whether quickly from a bomb explosion or slowly with radiation poisoning and DNA damage, as you will hear in this week's interview. Nuclear is a technology that harms people and the environment while making a small sector of the population obscenely rich. And in order to take steps to attempt to turn this around, we need to know the facts. 
That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We know where to look for the nuclear story, the questions to ask, so we can report on the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand, and mainstream reporters don't know to ask. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any size. That's where you can set up a monthly $5 donation, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. Please do what you can now, and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Radiation is what gets released by atomic a.k.a. nuclear explosions. And in a way, it's like the COVID virus. It doesn't care where it goes or who it hits. It's just going to do what it's going to do. And with radiation, that means direct long-term health degradation to those who have been exposed and genetic damage that cannot be reversed to any offspring who happens to get born. Let's hear about it from a personal perspective. Victoria Moore is a daughter of one such man whose position monitoring communications for the atomic bomb detonations in the South Pacific exposed him to an estimated 20 to 40 atomic bomb blasts, and possibly there could have been more. Victoria has joined with others to form the group ChildrenofAtomicVeterans.org, which addresses issues, shares information, and is advocating for more genetic research. I spoke with her on November 7, 2020. Victoria Moore, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Honored to be here. Victoria, let's start out with a bit about you. What is your background? I'm 64 years old now. I became aware of my atomic child status at age 12. And it's been a 42-year ride of knowing things that I wasn't supposed to and living a life that had two sides always, public and private. What did your father do in the military? At his highest level, he was a chief petty officer on the command ship for the joint task forces at all hydrogen and nuclear bomb tests in the Pacific Proving Ground from 1952 to about 1962. And about how many nuclear explosions did that expose him to? I can count over 24. If we assume and place him with his ship, it could be in the 40s. I have records and certificates. The one behind me was from Operation Ivy. That's what they showed me when I was 12. And that when I became in a need-to-know position, according to the U.S. Navy. You've referenced the age of 12 several times already, and that was in 1968. What were you told at that time, and why were you told it? I was born into a house that was Q-cleared eight years before my birth. When you say it was Q-cleared, explain to those of us who are not part of the military what that means. Q-clearance wasn't just military, but it is above top secret. It is specific to atomic. There are still many people under it now. And my father required a Q-clearance when he went to Oak Ridge, Tennessee in 1948. He emerged from Oak Ridge for that ship, the USS Estes. And he ran all the communications 
to my best that I can determine of that ship for most of her time of service. But she was designed for the atomic tests and it was the best communications they had in the world. And so when by the time I was born, he had had many exposures, two of the worst nuclear disasters and one right before I was conceived. They considered him incredibly hot at that time. So I was monitored even prior to my birth, aware that there would be could potentially be DNA and genetic issues for my parents to manage. So they knew about this from the get-go, even though it wasn't admitted to in public about the radiation exposure and the dangers of it. They knew and they were responding to it in your case, in your father's case. In real time, yes. So when you were 12, what was it that you were told and why were you told that? The trigger was my first menstrual period when I became potentially able to reproduce. That triggered my need to know position as far as the military and my parents were concerned. I have never worn a uniform, but I have served at the pleasure of the U.S. government since my birth. They sat me down at either the seventh or ninth floor of Oak Knoll Naval Hospital with the military medical gold team that had been monitoring and working with my dad. It helped me to understand why a lot of my time with him at his bases at Treasure Island, we were often at Hunter's Point, which as later in life I learned is radiation lab, nuclear radiation lab. But we bounced around every military base in the San Francisco Bay Area. Treasure Island was Atomic Central. So I was very well aware of my surroundings growing up, certainly. You made a pretty shocking statement to me when we were doing a pre-interview on this about the nature of the places where you lived and how they have been evaluated more recently. Can you tell us about that? Well, we didn't live on base day in and day out 24-7. We were on base all the time I, with myself, with my father. And it ranged from Mare Island Naval to Port Chicago Naval Weapons. Treasure Island was his main base. That was Atomic Central for all branches of the military. Hunter's Point, which was a shipyard, but it was also the home of the Atomic Energy Commissions in the Navy, their main nuclear, we called it the Rad Lab. That's now quite contested in San Francisco. But as I look across this whole spectrum now, everywhere that I remember as a place I spent my youth is now a super fun cleanup site with heavy challenges to its ongoing usability. So you grew up in a secretive household on government Superfund sites. What are some of the ways this influenced your childhood? The household was cue-cleared. I knew from the age of three that we did not discuss anything outside our four walls. Not much was discussed within them. Our house operated on a need-to-know basis for almost everything. Now, when they spoke with you at 12, they told you you were an atomic child, which is not a term that I have encountered before. Was that something they had clearly defined or they just kind of off the top of the head told you that? You know, they were all flying by the seat of their pants to some degree. My father was so heavily exposed. There had been a family decision that he would put himself up to research. So that was an understanding we had. 
there became some major decisions to be made. My brother was 11 years older. He was out of the household already and married. And when all of this transpired, so even it became insular just between the three of us, he never knew until his 60s what really was going on in the house when he became in a need-to-know position. Speaking of your father, as a result of your father's exposure through all of these atomic blasts that he was in proximity to, what are some of the diseases? What were some of the impacts on his health that he did experience as a result? The most traumatic to them as a couple and him as a man started very early when I was told at 12 not to reproduce that reproduction issues were going to be a problem for me. And they were just determining that he was having penile cancer that was the second only in the world from that high level of radiation exposure. So they were consulting with some top doctors globally, which back in 1968 is not an easy thing to manage as it is now. So we became aware that there was going to be some difficulties for them as a couple, and they were very vivacious, active, healthy couple. That was the strangest birds and bees story ever to tell a 12-year-old. But I was still doing duck and cover in my third grade class, and now I'm in sixth grade having to face a lot of very adult things. But I was a very precocious 12-year-old. I'd been on military bases and in very adult environments most of my life. Saying that your father suffered from cancer of the penis is a pretty shocking diagnosis and one that I've not heard about in all my time of doing nuclear hot seat. What was the upshot in his life from having had this cancer? Well, he deciding to be a guinea pig for them allowed him to have more advanced medical treatment that would have been available. And to the government's credit, he personally had excellent medical care throughout all the many years of research. What isn't really known is what was going on with the radiation falling on those ships is a lot of it was being collected in cisterns and in the commode systems on those ships, the gentlemen literally were dangling their personal information over troughs of radiated water. Mm. So reproductive issues for these men who had any long-term assignment on the ships um, does often impact reproductive issues, as it does in the offspring and further generations. I mean, I've considered myself a genetically modified offspring not necessarily organism as we refer now, but I've considered myself a GMO human since I was 12 years old. I used to sit around Oaknall Naval Hospital looking around wondering if the other children there were like me. I didn't realize until the last 10 years that I could talk about this, how unique my experience is. In breaking silence on this, what can you tell us about the direct health impacts that you have suffered as a result of your father's exposure to this radiation? Reproductive organs started becoming compromised at age 19. When you say compromised, what does that mean? I was being hospitalized frequently for pain, inflammation, things they couldn't chase down or understand. I ended up rolling out of military medical coverage at 21 when you age out of the system. But I had to go into a civilian medical environment, not able to tell them that I was this genetically modified atomic 
because we were under Q clearances. So as far as my father or I was ever concerned, that couldn't be discussed. So as my father, while I was 19, was when he actually had the penolectomy, there was five years or seven of trying to save it and trying to treat it. And the radiation treatments and chemos were not nearly as easy to tolerate then as they are today and understood as well. So it was a lot of family effort through that. But I ended up having to have a full hysterectomy in a civilian environment, not able to tell them why I was having reproductive or assumed problems. But they just determined that it was best to remove everything. So we did that. I'm now fighting two different versions of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, large T-cell and small B-cell follicular. And there's things going on in various parts of the body that are... When they look at them, they say, yeah, those are normally a hereditary condition, but we have no history in the family other than genetic modification. And that's fairly assumed. I'm so sorry that you have been going through this and continue to go through it. They told me at age 12 that my body would track with cancers like my father's. They didn't know what else might be problematic But it was pretty much assumed that I would generate similar cancers to him on a similar track. He had that I can determine as best with my uneducated medical ability from his medical records that I have access to. He was fighting at least five different known cancers. And then it was brain tumors that finally took him down. And those had yet has been diagnosed. When those surfaced, it was within a week he passed. All of this must have been tremendously painful for you. It was a lot of responsibility to support my mom and to keep it from my brother and his family. How did having this as a background lead you to become involved in nuclear issues? And when were you able to start with this work? I didn't become aware that the gag orders were lifted in 1996 until 2008. It's not like they send you a notice and say, you know, your key clearance is over. I had late in 2008, I found out that Clinton had pretty much lifted it for everybody in 1996. And the RECA Act existed that was never available in my parents' lifetime. They were never compensated. And I just became aware by accident, I wasn't looking for the information. When I had to file, or when I decided to file, it became the point that my brother was in a need to know situation. My parents had passed already 20 years, but I never felt it was my story to even tell him. I thought that was their story. She never told her son, even after he passed. So I figured it wasn't my business to tell him, but when it, you know, meant he could have 35 grand, which is wouldn't cover one of my hospital stays for five minutes. I figured he should know. So I had to break silence, 40 years of silence to him. You mentioned RECA, which stands for Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. What was that? And when you got involved with it, what did that do for you? It had existed so long. By the time I applied, there weren't a lot of applicants My application on behalf of my parents, it wasn't for my benefit, it was on behalf of their benefit. I think the entire team in there was trying to cheer it on through the process. 
it happened very fast. I have quite a dossier on my father and the research that's been done through the 2008 time period as I was filing this. I was only shown the one certificate above me and I just never went looking. It was traumatic enough what our family lived through to want to search it. But the reality of how many he was at became shocking. And the over arc of what it implied on so many other levels to so many other people became evident. It isn't really until the last five years I was diagnosed with the cancer invasion in 2015. So it's been five years now of really reaching into the community and seeing what's going on out there and realizing how unique my story is. And as I see the ongoing fights at Hunter's Point now for the reclamation and the land and the health issues, and I went to Treasure Island and was taken. And I mean, I just remember they had soldiers with what looked like metal detectors, but evidently they were radiation detectors. And they would be walking around like, and from a distance, it looked like they were playing golf, like they were swinging golf clubs. And they would joke about it in the officers' clubs that they were, you know, little, like, they referred to them as glowing golf balls. And then for the longest time, I was like, damn, is that a manufactured memory? But in the last year, I found someone else write about it. And I was like, oh, my God, thank God that wasn't just me. (laughs) But it's that rare. And to go out and see it now and see people living there and to look at what's going to happen with it and away talk cleanup, and the dome. And we need to be testing my generation and getting our genetics, which is my focus, because we're about to send more people in to clean up more. And from your experience, they're very similar when you get to the pathologies from the generations. And if we don't study these, if we don't grab the genetic material now and some of these stories now, they're going to be lost. You said you reached out over the last five years into the community, which is others whose parents were exposed to the radioactivity, the radiation during these In military environments has been my focus for their accountability from a genetic and research standpoint. However, what we do translates to the general civilian population, certainly. So... Based on the research you did and your personal motivations with this, you founded the group Children of Atomic Veterans. What is it? When was it founded? And what is its focus? Because my medical is not very well, I have corralled Kathy Sinai with me on this. And we have other people that have come through. I found a group online and a global Facebook group. This is not an American problem. This is a global problem. So many countries were testing. And from country to country, it varies what you have access to for the information. So which is why we focus the research side of it for children of atomic veterans, because we, we are documentable. We can place where in the world we were. Most of those countries now, we can assess what happened in those environments and to those soldiers and, can, and have some handle of it. It applies to everybody. I had the good fortune to be told not to have more children. I have run into so many generations now that are just finding out and just discovering, and they need a path. They need a path to understand it and the future and needs to know. 
and not lose this opportunity. So it has been founded. We are up. We've been kind of in the background pulling our boots up, but we have a lot of support and it's taken a while in this community. We deal with a community that a lot of people were under clearances to not talk for a very long time. What is the group focusing on? You've talked about the population, which is children of atomic veterans. Yeah. Is that in the United States alone, or are you international in terms global. of... Global. It is global. It is a global initiative. Yeah. And what is it that you are seeking to accomplish? What is the focus of the group? Right now, we would like to... Anybody who's willing to donate genetic material, if they are a child or descendant of an atomic veteran, we are trying to align and partner with a kit that will do the double-strand DNA test. It's different than what you can order for a general hereditary test. But about seven years ago, those became available. And we would like to partner with a company that's willing to hold that data and make it available for researchers. But it's a volunteer basis for the people donating. But we want to hold it into people who are descendants of military for the benefit of the researchers so they can have somewhat of a control group. But we don't want to hold the data specifically. We don't want to be in responsibility for that. So we're, that partnership is being looked at. We have three or four different initiatives. We're looking for specific funding to do some testing, sending some people back outside the government to go into the Marshall Islands and send them in for a week and grab some materials and get them out. There's enough people out here that need this information. Kathy and I, we've just had our heads down doing the work. She's my statistician, and she's been a little more face front with the groups. But we've got at least six or seven different initiatives. We'll be posting up after the first of the year as we get the fundraising for each initiative more identified and targeted. While we had our heads down, we were given a humanitarian award from the Republic of the Marshall Islands and the NOA Talk Cleanup Veterans for what we're doing. And we're just doing what we do. We had no idea people were looking over our shoulder. So it's time with all the awareness that's being raised and the, and the ratification of the treaty coming up, it's time. What has been the United States government's response to any contact that you've heard of from children of atomic veterans? And has there been any governmental pushback to the existence of your group? I'm not sure they know, they know we exist yet. We, I personally haven't been that focused. However, the inception when Kathy and I really started shaking our heads, we hadn't met. She read about my story on a personal website, felt connected, and she was advocating for me and a few others to Washington, D.C., to the White House every week. And when she got a response for, directly from President Barack Obama directing a gentleman and the VA to outreach to help me. So she had to call me while I lay in a hospital bed at Stanford being treated for cancer and introduce herself and tell me to expect a call from the White House. That was a pretty shocking introduction. I barely had seen her name in any of the online social groups. So it started a, a friendship, but at the end of the day, that gentleman came back to me months later and apologized, said there was nothing he could do. There was no program to fit me in for medical help, for financial, or even getting me 
into military medical where they might have a better understanding of my genetic issues. And why would they not want to track me since they spent 23 years tracking and treating my dad? And I figured if I was falling through that loop and they couldn't figure out where to fit me, who else? I would love to see his records. I've never asked for them because I've just assumed they've lied. They've never helped my parents. I never expected the help. I've never filed a lawsuit. I've never pursued a lawyer to look at it. It's just been assumed as part of my responsibility with what I was issued at birth. With your outreach now into the community, have you had a great deal of response? Have people been going, oh my gosh, we've needed something like this. I've needed something like this. There you are. Let's talk. I did veterans radio here on the West Coast a few months ago. They were pretty fascinating. It's a pretty jaw-dropping story. People on my inner circle have heard it. I wrote the first 250 pages as I was immersed in what I call the summer of shock and awe, which was 2008 when I sat on my floor in my house learning about my dad and trying to tell my brother. So I wrote about 250 pages just as I walked through that experience. And then as I was in a hospital bed and put into hospice care from Stanford, everybody wanted these stories documented. And I wasn't expected to make it in 2017. So another 250 pages of all these stories was written when I was incredibly unwell. So now that I'm here, thanks to uh, the grace of 33-year-old surgeon in UCLA as I arrived for hospice, I do get to live and tell the story and can do it in my way and it still needs editing. Well, we need all the information from you that's possible and also the inspiration of you standing up and saying, this happened to me, this was real for him, this is real for me, and there are others out there like you who don't even know that there might be others and a community that they can join. So what you're doing just by standing up and speaking of this is extremely important. Well, I think that there's a lot, like Kathy was born without cartilage in her ankles. It is a hereditary known element. She had to have her ankles fused at 16. But whether she was told at that age that it was because of that, she may not have learned that until her 30s. Well, now she has two children that are having hereditary issues. When you look at the explosion of autism in this country, and I know you sit on the board now, people don't understand why we haven't met before. But with Joe's studies, I mean, there is so many places to be active and the voices, it takes a while in this community, Mm -hmm. I think, to be accepted, but you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) It's just that. When you say Joe, you're referring to Joe Mangano of Radiation and Public Health? Yes, yes. Which brings the thought... What of the other groups that are out there, individuals who are very prominent in doing research and other work in this community, have you connected with in this portion of your journey? Because the HIV group has a lot of money and genetic research and very high visible players, I have access to some really interesting global geneticists. We want the researchers. We need that. And I think what we want to do is going to be an easy thing to put together. I think it's going to be cost efficient. 
I think no one's just done it yet. When you look at, at what the difference of your extended descendant of an atomic veteran in England versus America versus Australia versus France, anywhere, pick up. Your experience is different. And for researchers globally, I think this is an easy thing that we can pull together with people who want to volunteer. They need answers. Their families need answers. And one of our first goals was inspired by a young girl. Her name's going to escape me now because God bless, you know, chemo brain. But she was born with 33 health conditions because of her father's Agent Orange exposure. And she alone started raising that voice. And that group now has a two-page medical document anyone can print out for their physicians and caregivers and say, please just give this a look. I am a descendant of an atomic veteran. I talk to a doctor and they just look at me like I just grew a second head in front of them. Never mind the two-headed pigs they showed me when I was 12 and said, don't reproduce. But the medical community does not know how to respond to us. And it's nuanced. But low-dose exposure, high-dose exposure, you know, they're finding a pathology, whether it was energy or weapons, it's very similar. But if we don't start identifying places, how much and what the extent of that damage could be down a particular family line... You know, with genetic engineering, what it's yeah, that's a whole nother can of worms to open. But if we can get ahead of some of these, I think it's worth making the effort. If people consider themselves to be the children of atomic veterans and wish mm-hmm. to be part of your group, be part of a registry, whatever you're putting together, what's the mm-hmm. best way for them to contact you? The best way right now would be childrenofatomicveterans.org. We are collecting the most basic of information so we can circle back to you once we have identified what basic form is going to serve everybody. We have a couple top people that you are aware of that are helping us coagulate the information. So we're getting it fed up as best as possible. Right now, we're very happy to get you on a mailing list so we can keep you informed as to where to go. Is there anything that we've failed to go over that you would like to add right now? I think we need to address that these were known and recognized human radiologic experiments that just stopped, that there is data that can be picked up, even if it's just, like me, survivor stories. But who stopped them? Are they still going on? And if they're still going on in some clandestine form, then how do those of us affected get engaged? I don't know the answer to that, but these are known. You look up human radiologic experiments. I mean, what happened to them? Victoria Moore, I'm so sorry for what it is that you have been going through and so grateful that you have found your way to have a meaningful voice, and help others in their portion of this journey. And I really want to thank you for having been my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you soon. Victoria Moore is one of the founders of ChildrenofAtomicVeterans.org, and that's because she is one. Contact information for the group and how to register if this is part of your history as well is on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 490. Activists, Activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. 
First, a reminder of our earlier story that this Friday, November 13, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, there will be a virtual congressional briefing for one hour on what Congress needs to know about pending nuclear waste legislation. It's been put together by the Environmental and Energy Study Institute, and we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. This is the episode number 490. To give us all something positive to do this week, here again is my favorite PSA to emerge from the show, my talk with Susie Snyder of PAX in the Netherlands and her work on the program Don't Bank on the Bomb. Susie and I spoke at Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium on the dynamics of possible nuclear extinction. Cheerful title, isn't it? That event was held February 28th to March 1st of 2015. Susie Snyder provided a strategy for taking funding away from companies that make nuclear bombs and delivery components. Here she is with the short version of that strategy, which has implications for nuclear reactors as well. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments, go public. Because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think, and that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a, a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. Susie Snyder of DontBankOnTheBomb.com. She pointed out that Blue Cross and Blue Shield are invested in nuclear weapons manufacturers. This is either a conflict of interest or a great marketing plan. Either way, time to let your banks know. This is a strategy that has been proven to work, and future generations will thank you as long as they have the opportunity to be born. As the show heads towards its 500th episode in January, we have an opening for one or more persons to join our crew who posts the episodes on social media. Right now, we've been focused on Facebook, and we are open to extending to other platforms as well. So if you understand them and how they work and have a few minutes on Wednesdays to help us out, Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com, or you can message me on Facebook. And for that 500th episode, I'm planning on a brief look back on over nine and a half years of Nuclear Hot Seat episodes. So if you have a favorite moment, be it profound, ridiculous, or simply embarrassing to me, send your suggestion to info at nuclearhotseat.com. 
In order for me to find it, please include the number of the episode, the date, and this would be fabulous, the time when the notable exchange comment or incident occurred so that I can find them, put them together, and we can all have a good laugh looking back while we contemplate whatever the future will bring. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 10, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, the Numbnuts at ICRP, sanangelolive.com, thebulletin.org, bloomberg.com, forbes.com, local2.com, nhk.or.jp, the diplomat.com, globalresearch.ca, Fairwinds.org, Maritime-Executive.com, Splash247.com, NewScientist.com, ABCNews.geo.com, and the ever-co-opted Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Hey, we just learned that Nuclear Hot Seat is number one in business news in Bolivia. So a shout-out to however many people are listening in Bolivia. And we'll have other stats in the coming weeks ahead because that nut has finally been cracked. We do know that at least 123 countries have had downloads of nuclear hot seats, so people are listening, and that includes you. And you are part of the network of people who help keep this show going and keep us on the cutting edge. So if you know a good story, you've got a lead, a hot tip, a suggestion of someone to interview, send that information. Email is best to info at nuclearhotseat.com. To make sure you get the show every week and don't miss a single issue, you can sign up for our weekly email, one a week, we don't bug you, at nuclearhotseat.com. Just scroll down on that front page or to any of the other pages, and it's the yellow box. In there, put your first name, put your email address. We don't sell it. We don't do anything except make sure that you get this information. The split instant, it becomes available. And if you want to help us keep going, please, on the website, Click on the big red button, follow the prompts, do what you can. Anything will be appreciated. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. Reminding you that the last thing that anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, don't go back to sleep. Because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.